All right, so uh, I want to start by sharing with you a story from my life. This is the story of the red couch. Um, and I haven't told this story to very many people, um, but it was a really important moment for me in the history of uh, planting this church. So uh, you might already know uh, that Taylor and I graduated from seminary together at the same time. Uh, and then we moved our families down here from Pennsylvania at the same time. And we used the same moving truck to save a bit of money. Uh, in, order, in, in order to accomplish this feat, uh, we each had to get rid of about half our furniture. Um, so uh, I moved down here with no living room furniture at all. But that was okay, because we found out that there was another church in town that was willing to give the whole family some of the old furniture from their youth room. Score! Um, so pretty soon after hitting the ground in Tallahassee, Taylor and I rented a U-Haul, and we went over to the youth room to pick this furniture up. Uh, and the youth room was up on the second floor, up this very narrow staircase. Um, and we had to collect two items. Uh, there was a red chair and a red couch, a red three-seater couch. And they were both enormous, enormous. Um, so we started off with the chair, and we got that downstairs without too much trouble. Uh, but then it was time for this couch. And this was honestly like the biggest piece of furniture I'd ever seen. Um, so we took off all the parts of it that were in any way removable. Um, and then what we had to do is hoist the rest of it uh, up over this low wall uh, at the top of the stairs and around a tight corner. And then we had to line it up perfectly so it could slide down. Um, and we got it up over the wall and halfway around the turn. And I started thinking, this is not going to make it. Um, I've moved a lot of furniture in my life, uh, and I'm usually the guy that's like, oh yeah, we can do this. Uh, I, I've eased many a bulky and awkward load around a tight corner. Um, but few times has anything ever seemed as hopeless as this red couch. Um, so there we were. We were stuck on the diagonal. Uh, three of the corners were hard up against walls, and the fourth corner was up on the ceiling. Um, and I could see no way on earth to get it one inch further. And so I voiced my concern to Taylor, and I said, dude, we're not going to make it. Um, and he told me, of course we are. They must have got it in here somehow. Um, but I was starting to wonder if they might have built the room around this cat. Um, so we kept on working on it, and I kept voicing my doubts. And, and I suggested that my family could do just fine with just the chair. Um, but he kept on telling me that it was going to work. So for about half an hour, we eased this thing around, inch by inch, until we did finally have it straight, thanks to the flexibility of one of the walls. Um, and we slid it down uh, on top of the stairway handrail. One of the wall sconces will never be the same again. Um, but we did eventually manage to get that couch out of there. So I learned that Taylor was right. Um, and that moment from very early on has become for me a metaphor for our whole ministry together. Uh, because ever since, in my partnership with Taylor, whenever he suggested something that seems to be impossible, I've stopped and reminded myself, well, he was right about the red cap. Um, and here today, in 1 John chapter 4, John is speaking with a voice that sounds to me a lot like the voice of Taylor. Uh, because in 1 John 4, the voice says, keep going, we can do this. All right? um, because John was writing to a group of Christians who had a, a problem, really a crisis of faith. John knew that there was a problem in his young church. Because some of the Christians that, uh, he was writing to had started to doubt. They were starting to ask, 
Are we right? Is this working? Um, they were being persecuted. They were being both physically harmed and relationally shunned uh, because they belonged to Jesus. And some of their Christian friends were leaving. People were leaving and opting for something safer. Um, so the ones who were left were wondering, shall we give up at this point too? John knew that he had to reassure his people that they were on the right track and should keep going in their faith. So that's the heart behind this whole chapter. So we're going to uh, turn it up now. First uh, John chapter 4 is on page 1023 of the Church Bibles, and you can find it there. 1023, First uh, John chapter 4. Um, and I want to talk about three ways that John wants to reassure his readers that they have indeed found the true path to God and they should keep going. So uh, first, in verses 1 through 6, John says, We know that we have the Spirit of God because we believe in the Son. Okay? We know we have the Spirit of God because we believe in the Son. Second, in verses 7 through 12, he says, We know we have the Son because of our new relationship with the Father. And then third, in verses 13 through 21, he says, we know that we have the Father because he has given us of his spirit, right? So you probably noticed that John's logic in this chapter makes a full circle. He says, we know we know the spirit because of the Son, and we know we know the Son because of the Father, and we know we know the Father because of the spirit. So that sounds like the definition of a circular argument. Um, But actually, each stage of the circle produces its own evidence for us, the evidence that we can see. So it's a lot more like a house that's built on three solid foundations than a house that's painted by the artist Escher that's holding itself up in midair. Okay, so we're going to talk about those three things. First, we know we have the spirit because we believe in the sun. And this is from verses 1 through 6. John says in verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. All right, so the Spirit of God causes us to believe in the Son of God. Um, So John here jumps straight in to the reason that people are leaving the Christian faith. What's the reason? It's because they're being led astray by false spirits and false prophets, right? So we can see in that that John believes three things about spirits. First, that they exist. Second, that they speak to people. And third, that they're not always good, right? And in this, John agrees with most of his fellow Jews about spirits, Um, So, uh, for example, in the Old Testament, we read the story about Saul visiting the witch of Endor. Um, You might never have heard that read in church before. Uh, I kind of love that story. Uh, It really kind of reveals a lot about the spirit world, I think. Um, So we read in that story that King Saul saw the voice of God through dreams and prophets, but when he did that, he only got silence. So his next uh, thought was, well, let's go and find a witch. Um, So uh, Saul himself, Saul disguised himself so that she wouldn't be afraid of him because he banished all the witches from the land. Um, And he asked her to summon up the spirit of Samuel. And she went ahead and did that. And when the spirit came, she learned that her customer was actually King Saul, something that she hadn't known before. 
Um, and then Samuel spoke to Saul, and what Samuel said was a true prophecy that came to pass. Um, so, uh, in this Old Testament story, it very strongly suggests that the spirit world is real, and there can be real power in dealing with spirits, and they can speak to the living, either a true or a false word, and they can provide information that people don't otherwise have. Um, but the Old Testament is also clear um, that Saul did wrong here. Uh, interacting with spirits through magic arts is strictly forbidden. Uh, again, in our gospel reading, Jesus cast out an unclean spirit, and the spirit that he cast out spoke aloud, and it told the people something that none of them knew at the time, that Jesus was the Holy One of God. So John agrees with the rest of the Bible when he says that spirits are real and they speak to people, but they're not always good. So you'll meet some people who don't think spirits exist at all, and you'll meet others who believe in them but don't think they speak at all, and there are still others who think that everything spiritual is good, and they'll listen to everything spirits say. Um, and you can see why some people might find the idea of talking to spirits appealing, it's intriguing at the very least, and maybe a little bit exciting. And they might be able to answer our desperate questions when, Saul's, when God seems silent, just like Saul. Uh, but John says, be careful, because there are so many lies. Many false prophets have gone into the world, and we need a way to evaluate the spirits. And John says, the way to do that uh, is by asking what they have to say about Jesus. John says that all the good spirits, the angels that are from God, are strongly pro-Christ. But all the evil spirits, the demons, are strongly anti-Christ. So in verse 2, the way we can tell the difference is to ask them to confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Okay, that's his little formula. Uh, and if you do happen to find yourself in a situation where you need to test a spirit, uh, I don't think it needs to be any more complicated than asking it to repeat this very phrase. Uh, because this phrase contains three very important confessions about Jesus. First, that Jesus is the Christ. That means the Messiah who was promised in the Old Testament. Second, it is a confession that Jesus is God because it's a confession that he had an existence before he came in the flesh. And third, that he has now come in the flesh. So he was incarnated and became man. So this is a confession that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Uh, and this simple confession does away with all the different kinds of false teaching about Jesus that John was seeing at the time. So it's also very practical. It's not just theoretical. Uh, John was seeing that some Christians at the time were abandoning Jesus as their Messiah and returning to Judaism. But he said they weren't actually returning to Judaism at all because it doesn't exist anymore without Jesus. Instead, they're following a spirit of Antichrist. And John was also seeing some Christians follow a false prophet named Serinthius who taught that Jesus was just an ordinary man until the Spirit of God fell upon him to anoint him as the Messiah. But if you follow Serinthius, that means that Jesus wasn't fully God. And then thirdly, John was also seeing people who were led astray to a false belief called docetism that said that Jesus was the divine son of God who came as our Messiah, but he only appeared to take on flesh. It was kind of an illusion. It only seemed to happen. Um, but of course, docetism means that Jesus wasn't fully man. So all of those disagree with one of these fundamental statements in John's confession. 
Um, and if Jesus wasn't fully man, he couldn't die as a substitute for our sins. So the last heresy, Docetism, leaves us with no salvation at all. <laughs> Actually, they all do. Uh, all the others uh, leave us with no salvation. But John asserts that the Holy Spirit of God and every other good spirit will affirm the glorious truth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Amen. There's only one truth, but there's ever so many distortions of that truth. So you see that although the truth never changes, the messages of the false prophets take so many different forms. Um, all the different lies were pouring in at the time and cluttering up the airspace, trying to drown out the truth with noise. And we realized that the situation that John was facing in the first century really hasn't changed much today. If you can imagine a way to corrupt the message about Jesus, then you can be sure that some cult or religion out there is, is teaching that and following that today. Um, the, the messages of the false prophets take almost every imaginable false form there is. Um, but John isn't despairing about that when he writes this chapter, because he says in verse 4, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So the really great news is that the Holy Spirit is able to make his still, small voice heard. He is able to communicate the truth about Jesus in words that we understand. All of us have heard him, and most of us have believed him. And if we believe today that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, then that's because of the work of the Holy Spirit. It can only be his work. It's just too hard to believe otherwise, and there's far too much noise. But the Spirit has spoken to us, and he's still speaking. He spoke through his prophets and through the apostles like John, and we have his word intact today, the Bible in our hands. And we know that this word has not changed for these many centuries. It doesn't need to change because there's only one truth. The heresies come and go, but this word rings out into the world as clearly as it did two millennia ago. And people all over the world are coming to believe in the name of Jesus. So first, we know we have the Spirit because we believe in the Son. The Spirit brings a truth that drives out falsehood. Now second, we know we have the Son because of our relationship with the Father. So we're now looking at verses 7 through 12. In verse 7, John comes back to his favorite theme in this book, the theme of love. And he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for, God, uh, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So he's talking here about a new relationship with God the Father. We know him because we've been born of him. And how was that birth accomplished? Through his son. So John says in verse 9, In this the love of God was manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And now you all know what that means. Um, it's because of the son that we can know the father. And in saying this, John was standing strongly against another false teaching that was emerging in the church at the time called Gnosticism. 
So Gnosticism was an early Christian heresy, and you basically make it by putting Christianity and Platonism in a blender, turning it on, and making a big mess of both. Um, The basic ideas were that all matter is evil and all spirit is good. God himself is unknowable. Man's problem isn't sin but ignorance, and therefore salvation is accomplished through knowledge. So the name Gnosticism comes from the Greek verb gnosis, which means knowledge. Um, And as you might imagine, Gnosticism grew up to be a cult of secrets. It surrounded itself with layers of mystery. And the higher up the ranks you progressed, the more of the secrets you got to learn. So in that way, it was much like the Coca-Cola company. And this whole chapter of 1 John seems to be written to deliberately refute Gnosticism. So against the idea that all matter is evil, John said in verse 2 that Jesus, the Son of God, came in the flesh. Against the idea that all spirit is good, John says in verse 1, test the spirits. Against the idea that God is unknowable, he says here in verse 7 that whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And against the idea that our real problem is ignorance, John says in verse 10 that Jesus died for the sake of our sins. But because of this cult of secrets luring people in with the promise of secret knowledge, it's so important to John that Christians understand what they already know. Seven times in this chapter, he uses the Greek word gnosis, knowledge. Verse 2, by this you know. Verse 6, whoever knows God. Again in verse 6 at the end, by this we know. Verse 7, has been born of God and knows God. Verse 8, does not know God. Verse 13, by this we know. And verse 16, so we have come to know. Do you see how important this is to John? Gnosticism threw up all this confusion for people about what they could really know about God. Could they be sure of anything? But John says, yes, we can be sure. Yes, we can know God. When Jesus died on the cross for us, we saw the love of God in action. And at the same time, Jesus was the propitiation for our sins. So he turned away the Father's anger and restored peace. And we can know God now. And all of this is no secret. It's not veiled in layers of shadow. This death of Jesus for our sins is the most important event in Christianity. Think about it. It could not have been more public, could it? It could not have been a more public event. Jesus was tried by every court in town. And then he was hung up beside a main street to die in full view of some 5,000 people. Priests, Romans, ordinary Jews and visitors from all over the Roman world who were in town for Passover. This was the moment that the sins of the world were paid for. And what could be less private than that? What could be less secret or hidden? Jesus lived a public life and he died a public death. And God accepted his offering as the propitiation for our sin. So when you confess your sins to God and plead the death of Jesus, you are forgiven. God shakes your hand and says, it's dealt with. And everyone in the New Testament wants you to know that for sure. I can tell you from my own experience that I am sure that my sins are forgiven. And not because they're small and few, because I know they're serious and many. And not because they're all in the past, because sin is a present problem in my life. 
But I know that it's all forgiven because Jesus died for me. I know that it's all been covered and I don't carry any guilt on my conscience. When I feel guilty, I confess to God and I physically feel that burden lifted. I know that it's gone and that I'm clean again. I know that I have an uninterrupted relationship with the Father. And I deeply wish for all of you to be able to say the same. So first, we know that we have the Spirit because we believe in the Son. And second, we know that we have the Son because of our relationship with the Father. The Spirit brings a truth that drives out falsehood, and the Son brings a peace that drives out anger. Now third, we know we have the Father because he has given us his Spirit. This is from verses 13 through 21. So John says this directly in verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And then, and then to make sure that we're keeping up, John goes around the whole circle again in verses 14 and 15. So he says in verse 14, Because of the Spirit, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. That repeats the first point. We know that we have the Spirit because we believe in the Son. And then in verse 15, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. That repeats the second point. We know that we have the Son because of our relationship with the Father. So John is revving up here to deliver his climactic conclusion in verses 16 and 17. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us. So then, all the work God has done in saving people and teaching them the truth is all pointing toward this glorious conclusion, a community of love. John says God is love. And that phrase is John's second great God is statement of this letter. So the first was at the beginning of chapter one. He said God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And now here twice in chapter four, he says God is love. Love. That word entirely describes and defines God, <clears throat> what God is like. All love comes from him, and in him <clears throat> is no trace of anything unloving. So God's great project in saving people is to create a community of love, where the people who are saved and forgiven by the death of Jesus love one another. And John says in verse 17 that by this is love perfected with us. That word perfected is the Greek word telos. Love is perfected, completed, or finished. So Jesus' last word on the cross was tetelestai, from the same word telos. It is finished. It is complete. And here John says that when the people of God love each other with the love of God, then love is perfected with us. It is finished. It is complete. So that's all very high and mystical, but it has two visible effects. The first is that this kind of love within a community should be obvious. And that was what we talked about last week. Jesus said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So this Christian love is special and distinctive. And people who visit our community should see it in action and experience it for themselves. So once again, we see that nothing about Christianity relies on secrets. It's not like Gnosticism at all. 
The truth of the Holy Spirit is recorded in a book, the Bible, that anyone can pick up in any bookstore for 10 bucks and read for themselves. And we don't have any other secret books. The Spirit's truth points to the Son who walked about on earth and lived and died in full public view and did nothing in secret. And the Son's saving work restores our relationship with the Father and creates a love that you can see. And the effects of God's love on a community are on weekly public display all over the world. So no part of this is hidden in any way. That's the first visible effect, obvious love. And the second is fearlessness. So John says in verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. So Sarah says that fear is like a big bouncer at the door, telling fear that it has no ticket and it can't come in. Uh, The people who know God through Jesus have no fear of punishment since they know that they're forgiven. They have no fear of the future since they know that it's safe with God. And they have no fear of God himself since they know him and love him as their father. So since all of these fears are taken care of, we don't fear the world's scorn since we're safe in the father's approval. And we don't fear the world's threats since we know that our eternal future is secure. So John says that the people of God in whom love is perfected should be characterized by an unusual lack of fear. And indeed, you can pick up any number of history textbooks or biographies about the saints of God and see that this is true. So when John wrote chapter 4 of this letter, the Christians he was writing to were tempted to give up on Jesus. They were starting to ask, are we right? Is this working? And should we give up at this point? Should we leave the red couch behind and just make do with the armchair? But John says emphatically, no, you are on the right path. You are going to make it. It's just going to take a little bit of grit. We know that we have the Spirit because we believe in the Son. We know that we have the Son because of our relationship with the Father. And we know we have the Father because he has given us his Spirit. The Spirit of truth drives out falsehood. The Son brings a peace that drives out anger. And the Father brings a love that drives out fear. So we have confidence in our faith. We are surrounded by a glorious Trinitarian circle. And if you are feeling insecure this morning, lacking in confidence, or tempted to give up, then this chapter of 1 John is for you. And I want to close by speaking over you a hymn by the great Charles Wesley. It's one of my favorite hymns, um, and it's been a huge encouragement to my own faith. Wesley, for me, captures the kind of grit John is calling for in chapter 4. He wrote this. Away, my unbelieving fear. Fear shall in me no more have place. My Saviour does not yet appear. He hides the brightness of his face. But shall I therefore let him go and basely to the tempter yield? No. In the strength of Jesus, no. I never will give up my shield. Although the vine its fruit deny, although the olive yield no oil, the withering fig tree droop and die, the field elude the tiller's toil. The empty stall no herd afford, and perish all the bleating race, yet will I triumph in the Lord, the God of my salvation praise. Barren, although my soul remain, 
and no one bud of grace appear. No fruit of all my toil and pain, but sin and only sin is here. Although my gifts and comforts lost, my blooming hopes cut off I see, yet will I in my Saviour trust and glory that he died for me. In hope, believing against hope, Jesus, my Lord, my God, I claim, Jesus, thy strength will lift me up. Salvation is in Jesus' name. To me he soon shall bring it nigh. My soul shall soon outstrip the wind on wings of love, mount up on high and leave the world and sin behind. Amen.